You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Alive, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we scuffle our way through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom. Just a couple of dinky and boomers, always looking and listening for our elusive metaphorical caterpillar hiding in the heart of these movies that, upon close examination, becomes a dazzling and beautiful butterfly, inspiring awe and wonder and shaping our imaginations. Hopefully along the way, we enrich the experience of these animated films and have some fun too. Today, we are hunting through the farms and woods of the 24th canonical animated film, 1981's The Fox and the Hound. My co-host, as always, is Michael Farmer. And you know, Michael, we met it seems... Such a short time ago, you looked at me, needing me so, yet from your sadness, our happiness grew, and I found out I needed you too. That's very sweet, Josh. <laughs> yeah. And today we also have a special guest, if you would <laughs> like to introduce him. Yeah. Uh, so our guest is Wesley Rogers. Uh, he went to the school I taught at until recently, and his wife was one of my English majors, and now we're the best of friends. Oh, thanks, Michael. <laughs> uh, my name is Wesley I uh, work at a college in the Northwest near Seattle, and I also love Disney, so I asked to be on. What made you pick this movie? I, like, faintly had recollections of really liking this movie as a kid. Admittedly, until this month, it had probably been 15 years since I had watched it. But when I was young, I romanticized being outside and hunting, and so I remembered liking this movie, and it was kind of a deep cut, so I thought, why not? Yeah, you were certainly the only person who asked to be on this one. It's a great one. I think uh, it's fun. Why not? You know, so here I am. Yeah, well, we are glad to have you. Welcome. Uh, and you're right, it is it is kind of a fun movie, um, and it's it's a little... Um, I don't. I guess we'll talk this through as we go through. But like, what what makes it a deep cut? Like, what's what's the thing about it that sets it? You know, like where it's not quite at the level. But we'll probably get there um, as we walk through uh, the movie. My big question coming out of this was if uh, Michael W. Smith's Friends of Friends Forever was inspired by this movie. Oh, it should have been. <laughs> it has to have been, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> This is Michael W. Smith's only frame of reference for friendship. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> he is from West Virginia. Doesn't this movie seem kind of like it's set in West Virginia? Do you think that this movie is about him and Stephen Curtis Chapman's friendship? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, Wesley. That's some 90s CCM references. It's okay. I like vaguely know all this stuff, but I am a little young for Michael W. Smith. Uh but I've definitely heard him in the car with my mom, so. Nice. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it did have a little West Virginia feel, especially um, 
oh, what's the what's the name of our main uh, antagonist man? Amos. There. Amos. Amos. Yeah, Amos. He he really reminded me a little bit of what we see in uh, uh, one of those one of those early um, shorts. Actually, the one that the one that's left off of the the what is it the where they sh- they all shoot and fight each other. Right. It's the uh, kill each other in the end. Oh, it's the one that's the uh, Hatfields and McCoys, but I can't remember yeah. what it's called, and I can't remember which of the package films it's from. Yeah, so I'm not much help, but yes, absolutely, no. he seems <laughs> to belong to that group. You yeah, you pulled that one out of my um stumbling words there, so thanks. Um but yes, uh not not so much in the character animation, because I remember that being just in that movie being incredibly poorly animated, but just kind of a, a bit of a throwback to that that style of human, I guess. Um It's uh and, in in that it's an offensive stereotype of rural southerners. Yeah, that's that's basically it. <laughs> I thought that this what was interesting, I really did feel that this entire movie kind of had a 1950s-esque feeling. Um, the animation style, even the opening credits really made me feel that. Um, but I was surprised when I like looked it up and it was actually made in 1981. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I was just very confused because it didn't feel like 1981 to me. No, no, it does not. This movie is roughly as old as Josh and I are. Yeah, I, I have one more before I'm alive. I mean, in the in the next the next uh, next month I'll be alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I was born in '82. Um, yeah. So, so the thing that strikes me most in terms of that throwback feel is how much this movie seems to be composed of butt ends of other movies. So you have you have that bit, the Hatfields and the McCoys, whatever they're called, the something in the Coys, I think. Um, also, there's a whole heck of a lot of Bambi in this movie. And there's yeah. a there's an awful lot of bongo uh, from I think that's Footloose and Fancy Free, Fun and Fancy Free, whatever the whatever, yeah, <laughs> whatever the movie's free. called. No, that's right. So, yeah. so I, I I would say an awful lot of this movie we have seen before. Sometimes literally, I, I think there are shots in here that are just uh, reconstitutions of shots from Robin Hood with the foxes. But I could be wrong about that. I didn't look it up. Definitely, it seems like it. I mean, it, there there's some very close parallels, and I think there's a. To me, it seemed like there's a couple things going on that that kind of gives that vibe, at least like within the studio. Um, and I didn't do a ton of research this month because school has just started, and so that's dominated my entire life. But from so this is this is just calling on my you know general understanding. So you guys, if you know better. Um, feel free to jump in and correct it. But um, basically, this is the this is kind of we've been in this transitional phase of the old guard has been slowly retiring away and the new guards coming up. And a lot of the new guard um, have been trained by uh, like uh, the the beginning of uh, the Cal Arts animation department was actually like like Disney had a hand in it because he wanted um, animators who knew what they were doing, right? So um, a lot of the the still big names in animation, um, Brad Bird, uh, what's his name, Tim Burton, uh, like uh, they, Andrew Stanton, like they all went through that program, right? And so they're working in the studio at this time. And so having been trained on and obviously idealized the classic Disney um, making them want to be animators. I think they're trying to harken back to it. While at the same time, I think the old guard is also trying to harken back to it because it's kind of like a glory days sort of thing. You and know? this is the last so, movie that would feature any of the nine old men. Right. 
um, and barely, right? Like, um, I think uh, they just did a little bit of character design on the fox and the hound, and then, uh, but none of the like the key animation sequences, I believe. And then uh, Reitherman, who's been the kind of the director for the last, gosh, going all the way back to <laughs> for a while. <laughs> I uh, it's been a while since he's, you know, that he's always been in the director's chair. I think this is the last one that he directs as well. And I think there was a there was actually some scuffling in the directorship in this movie as well. Well, the story yeah. I heard is that he turned to, I think it was Ollie Johnston, and said, this is a young man's game. And and that was kind of it for him. And he dies a couple of years later. He gets in a, a single car collision and dies. Kind of a sad end to the story of this guy who's done so much for these, now admittedly, second tier Disney movies. But as you say, he's directed every one since at least The Jungle Book. And I think he may have done Sword in the Stone, too. Yeah, I think he did. I was I was trying to remember. Um, I should I should have better notes in front of me. But yeah, uh, yeah, he's been around for a while. So, um, yeah. So I don't know how much you guys want to get into studio stuff and how much you want to hang out on the movie. The other the other big studio event in like during the making of this film is this was the the uh, the exit of Don Bluth, who went on to do the FIFO movies and uh, Land Before Time and those sorts of things. He he teamed up and formed an animation studio with Steven Spielberg, I think. I think they worked together on it. Um, but he took, uh, I think, 17% of the animation staff with him <laughs> when he left. It was kind of a big uh, big in-house kerfuffle there. And he left in, in protest, right? Yeah, he left in protest during this movie. So um, he didn't like the direction it was taking and... Um, so I, I I think there's a great story to be told there. I actually I wish I knew it knew it better. I know a little I know bits and pieces of it, but um, yeah, I'll reach out to our listeners again and say if anybody has a really great resource or documentary or something on on that time in Disney, I I, I love that in studio working stuff. So I'd be happy to know more about it. Josh, I forgot to look. Am I right that Tim Burton also was an animator on this one? I know he was an animator on Black Cauldron. Uh, I believe he was. Like, I think all those big name guys were, you know, cutting their teeth on this one. It's so, so funny that all of them ended up being such powerhouses in animation, and this movie looks so bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I. Yeah. It does look bad, but it's, it's also kind of one of the more interesting things to me about the movie is uh, I loved the Technicolor with it, and um, despite it looking bad, it was probably one of the more attractive things about the movie to me was that it was so uh, different from everything else. So I don't know. It was bad, but I kind of enjoyed it in a weird way. What What do you mean different from everything else? Like, I mean, maybe it's because I'm younger, right? So I grew up on uh, the 90s, the 2000s, and then recently uh, my wife and I typically go see whatever new animated film comes out in theaters. Uh, it looks completely different than anything made from the 90s on. Um, maybe it's more in line with the 70s and 80s. But uh, it was just such a, a weird watch to me because I'm very used to the computer mm-hmm. animation and the way that things move differently. And like that was it was really weird for me watching this because it's probably been 10 to 15 years since I've watched anything this old, uh, you know, animated wise so i kind of got a kick out of that but uh if if you've been watching through them maybe this one was complete rubbish compared to the other ones it is definitely 
I mean, obviously it's different from the, the newer stuff and, and the Disney renaissance that starts with Little Mermaid really amps up the animation, no doubt. Um, but I also think this movie looks chintzy even compared to the Xerox era stuff that we've been watching. So, so you could look at something like Robin Hood, which is a very poorly animated movie, although we both loved it. Um, it is stylized in a way where you could almost say, well, they wanted it to look like that. This just looks like they didn't have the money to make it look good. And so I, I agree with you that sometimes with that low budget uh, look, there's there's something to recommend it. Um, yeah. I don't know that I find much to like in the animation here, with a few exceptions. The bear at the end, I think, is really, really well done uh, compared to the rest of the movie. But mostly this just looks cheap to me. I loved the bear scene. That was truly like maybe the most interesting animation in the entire movie. Um, but I also really like young copper, uh, the, like the skin folds and the, the different tones in his eyes. I thought that was kind of fun, but um, the rest is pretty plain and, and a little boring. What's your feeling about young copper's character design, Josh? Uh, I think he's, I mean, I th- I, this movie seems built to um, try and uh, stir people's emotions. Like, sure. I mean, that it's it's overly cute, you know. And so that that's what I have to say about it. He's just overly cute. Because yeah, Victoria Victoria thought he was really cute when we watched the movie, and I think I think that character is really um, kind of revolting. The way he looks, <laughs> not not when he's older. But it's it's the young copper that makes me. Um, kind of recoil, but I think I'm in the minority for that because the stuff I was reading online, lots of people comment on how cute that character design is. And I, I think our listeners will remember that a lot of times things that are cute in these movies kind of turn my stomach. From the very first mm. episode when we talked about uh, Snow White, I talked about my disgust at Dopey's character animation. Um, and then there's all sorts of things that other people find cute that I don't like. So I think this is probably just par for the course for me. Sure, yeah, and I think that cute. I think that it's not only the way that he's drawn that uh, makes him cute, but also even his lines and his like speech impediment is kind of cute, right? Uh, my I'm wife, a hound been, dog. yeah, my wife has been quoting the "Can I use my nose?" line uh, regularly around our house, so uh, we we found that character pretty cute. I found Todd to be a bit insufferable, but. Uh, I liked Copper, so... That's interesting, because I really like Todd and don't care in the least about Copper. And I, w- I, wonder, I wonder if there's some sort of personality test that this movie is performing, <laughs> um, since it's, it's clearly not that everybody likes one or the other. Sure, I, think, <laughs> I think older Todd is a lot more interesting than younger Todd, but, and maybe older Todd's more interesting than older Copper, but younger Copper, to me... Uh, is is much more interesting than Young Todd. I think you should run with this idea, Michael. I think you should uh, develop a <laughs> a uh, a personality test based on what you find cute and interesting. Maybe liberal Christians would latch onto it instead of the Enneagram. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
so yeah i was i was I, I you brought up bambi a little bit ago michael and i was i think there's an interesting maybe a dialogue um to be had or between between a couple movies here so bambi obviously is um kind of well it's it's known by our listeners like it's my favorite of the disney movies like i just think it's it's it reaches peak animation um and it's just wonderful uh and uh i think we talked about in our bambi episode and i'm sure we'll talk about it again when we get to lion king that lion king is very much a um a reflection of bambi not that they're the exact same movie but there's there's a lot of the same beats and a lot of the same ideas and i saw in this movie also a lot of callbacks to bambi it seemed like they were trying to create some of the same feeling um but uh what this one just seems like very out of place with those other two you know like it seems like they're trying to do some of the same things but it's very different um did you guys notice that or feel that I mean, the opening scene is basically a recreation of the opening scene of Bambi, right? Yeah. Like where the the yeah. mom fox dies. I was like watching it again. I was like, oh, this is just Bambi. Um, but it wasn't as like I remember being traumatized by watching Bambi's mom die as a child. But uh, obviously, I liked this one. Like I said earlier, because of the hunting aspect of it. So you don't so care I, that I, somebody shoots a fox, but if somebody shoots a beautiful deer. Right. It didn't it didn't bother me at all that he kills uh, the mom of Fox, but I, I think Bambi's part of that mama. may also be that you are given forty five minutes to an hour to come to love Bambi's mother, whereas mm. Victoria and I couldn't even agree whether the fox that carries Todd to safety is his mother or father. Like there's 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 no character there at all. Mm. Um so so it's it's a little bit abstracted. Uh, where where you really feel Bambi's mother's death, you don't feel the death of Todd's mother, I would assume, but it could be his father. Yeah, there's a video on YouTube that I really like about uh, the way movies are edited, and um, I think I want to say it's by Nerdwriter, but I'm not positive about that. But um, anyway, he goes through. He takes he takes a moment and he compares um, the you know there's kind of a, a scene in every sort of like. Uh, action like the the hero discovering he's a hero movie where they 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 are are trying to do it there's like the training sequence basically where they're trying to figure something out they fail but then they have to like get good at it and he compares side by side um what happens in the first ant-man movie and what happens in uh empire strikes back where luke is studying with yoda and uh and he just talks about how movies have changed in the way that they're edited so the luke uh training sequence is i think like six minutes long whereas the ant-man sequence is like six seconds long but it's all the same beats but just super condensed. And I felt that a little bit with this movie. Like um, you get the ice scene where he's like rolling across the ice. But in in Bambi, that's a whole sequence where you're really drawn into the woods and drawn into their lives. And here it's a couple seconds, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and then what you just mentioned, too, with the, with the hunting, like you don't you don't have a a, a moment to um, to really understand who that fox is. And and I mean maybe that's as it should be because that's not the focus of this movie. The focus of Bambi is learning how to live with the fact of death, right? And the the focus on this one is something else. We can talk about what this movie is trying to say. I think there's a, a pretty clear race allegory going on, but maybe it's more complicated than that. Um, 
but Todd's mother isn't really important for that story because the story's about him and Copper. Right, that's true. And I think there there is something where this this is trying to tell maybe a slightly different story than uh, The Lion King or Bambi are, um, for sure. But it did seem like they they do a lot of the same beats. Like even the end of this movie ends with the silhouettes of the foxes looking down on um, Copper and uh, Chief, right? In the same way that Bambi ends with the... Um, you know, Bambi looking down at his his new fawns or whatever. So, I I don't know. I th- I think they really tried hard to echo a lot of those moments in Bambi. I was thinking too that um, Bambi and Lion King both begin and end with life, like they both start and end with a with a birth, whereas this movie starts and ends with with a death, like a different kind of death. Like the mm. there's the the shooting of the fox directly at the beginning, and then at the end it's it's kind of the the death of that relationship, even though they remain friends, quote unquote, like they're obviously never going to be able to interact or talk or see each other again. So mm. kind of a downer ending, if you think about it. Yeah, it's a super downer ending. I uh, am shocked still about how even after Todd comes to save uh, him, Amos first reaction is to just go shoot Todd again. Um and while it's, like, sweet that Copper gets in the way and then they, like, let him go, it, it was really pretty downer after after all that, so. And kind of surprising, I think, because um, they they seem to have really softened the movie from the book. I haven't read the book. I don't know if you, either of you guys have. No, but I guess it's rather Chief, drastically out of print. Yeah, and... Um, but I guess Chief actually dies in the book. Everybody which... dies in the book. Chief oh, okay. dies, Copper dies, Todd dies, Vixie dies. They all die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess maybe it's not that much of a downer if you if you see how they've, they've softened it. The, there was apparently a big debate, and I think maybe this is what Wolfgang Reitherman was talking about when he, he said, this is a young man's game, about whether or not to kill Chief. Because Homeboy gets hit by a car, or a, excuse me, a train, you say, it certainly seems like he's going to die, and then what? He just breaks his leg. I, does I he think, get hit or does he jump? I I thought he jumped, but when I was reading online, people are saying he got hit. So so oh. I mean, either way, right? It should have killed him. One would right. think, and it would certainly make their anger at Todd make more sense. As it is, they feel crueler than I think they're supposed to. Whereas if Chief died, you would totally understand why Copper wanted to kill Todd. Right. Also in the book, apparently Todd purposely lures Chief to that railroad trestle. Oh, sure. That would make sense why you would want to kill Todd more. Whereas now it just kind of seems like an accident, right? He came up there. He's just trying to get away. He ducked. Chief got hit. But if you purposely lured him up there, you'd want to kill him, right? Yeah, well, especially if Chief died. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, apparently the book is just a colossal bummer. Um, apparently it's it's um, much more realistic as to how foxes and dogs and so forth behave in real life um, mm. compared to this, which I guess is not realistic. I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time watching foxes. <laughs> I don't think they're very domesticated creatures. So like, yeah, I'm not sure yeah. you could. I'm not sure you could keep one as a pet like that. Although maybe you could if you raised it from a kit. Yeah. I, I turned to Victoria and said, uh, "When is Todd going to develop his musk gland?" 
foxes uh, let out a, a rather uh, serious, unavoidable odor. You certainly wouldn't want one living in your house. No, definitely not. Do you mind if we talk about the birds in the movie? Well, we should at some point, shouldn't we? I absolutely hated the birds in this movie. All of them. <laughs> I, I found Big Mama to be completely unnecessary to the story. Well, I agree with that. Um, and, I don't know, maybe this is because I'm younger, right? But uh, I was a little disturbed by the like Aunt Jemima-like stereotype of Big Mama. She is uh, right on that line. Right in that line of being uncomfortable in 2019. Right. It just was like, okay, like you're clearly like an older maternal black lady. I didn't enjoy that. And then the other two birds, I felt like they were just space fillers for the movie. Like that weird B plot about like catching the worm. It really like reminded me of the Ice Age movies where the squirrel's going for the acorn. And I like it was so unenjoyable to watch the movie during that times. <laughs> I think Wesley just like explained DreamWorks to me. Like I understand it now. Like these, the, the people who work there and make those films are the people who are inspired by the weird B plot moments that don't make any sense. And everybody else hates in the Disney movies. And they're like, that's the best part. We should make a whole studio about these movies. <laughs> do you, do you not like the that's B plot it. either? Um, I, I thought it was I, well, so um, I the suspension of disbelief was really hard for me because I was like, it does not take that long for a caterpillar to turn into a butterfly. Um, <laughs> like it, it's over a year, and so also I I think they would starve to death. They ne- they ne- they never catch anything. So I did wonder what they were eating. I, um, the, I I I'll go to bat for that plot. I like it. I think it's funny. Um, I, I know it's it's much more Looney Tunes than than what we're used to seeing. I mean, it is a blatant ripoff of the Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons for sure. But I liked it, um, and I think you've got to have it because there's so little levity in the main plot of this movie. So having having these two birds try to kill the caterpillar is about the only fun you're going to get in the Fox and the Hound. Think about how bleak this movie would be if it was just the A plot. Well, maybe that's why it felt so out of place because it is such a bleak movie that it was it wasn't funny. It felt zany to me, um, and if it because of that, it didn't provide any levity to the movie for me. It just kind of felt like this is like weird. And then there's that like psychedelic trip where the uh, caterpillar goes into the electric lines, and it just felt really weird to me. Uh, and and not funny, zany was was the word I kind of got out of it. Yeah, that's fair. I'm willing to admit that I I kind of like it irrationally. But uh, I think to, what you say is true, though. Like we do, you do need the moments of levity in the, in a movie, and in particular in a movie like this one. So, um, and I think you're right that 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 is the purpose that they're serving. I was also wondering if there was like a, I couldn't I couldn't piece this together in my head, but I was wondering if there was a weird parallel between. You know, you've got the 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 hound who is mortal enemies with the fox, and you've got these birds and the caterpillar, and you've got the hunter, you know, and the hunted like throughout. Like I didn't I didn't know if they kind of fit into some sort of theme in that way. I um, think so. Yeah, yeah, nobody nobody catches what they're hunting for, I guess, at least not on screen. To, to me, is... the whole thing is worth it for the shots of the smug caterpillar 
laying on his back and feeding himself leaves and like warming himself by the <laughs> fire. Like what I loved about it was that the caterpillar was not presented as an innocent victim. He, he really is kind of insufferable and uh, it would be great if Boomer got to eat him. I also found it weird that one, uh, is it the woodpecker that's Boomer? Woodpecker is Boomer. Yeah. Yeah. When Boomer, uh, he's standing on the end of the branch and he pecks and he falls, right? You remember that part? And I I just couldn't stop but think, but he can fly, so why didn't he? <laughs> well, you know, he's kind of stupid. Because well, the, the truth, I mean, that, that's that's right out of Roadrunner right. and Coyote. Right. Or the fact that they left, like, in the dead of winter rather than, I don't know, late fall, perhaps. Woodpeckers don't even migrate to begin with. I didn't know. Sparrows, I yeah. think, do, but woodpeckers don't. And apparently owls don't. I don't think owls migrate. I think they probably do something close to hibernate. I don't know. Whatever. I did look it up, though, because I thought, wait a second. I've never seen a woodpecker flying south for the winter. Once again, with the animals not behaving like real animals. I know. It's like the dumbest (laughs) complaint you can make that, oh, you know, this this movie's not very realistic. (laughs) But does it it work or not is a good question. I I mean, if, if, if... the B plot clashes terribly with the A plot. If it is, as Wesley says, zany rather than funny, that that is a valid complaint. And it, it's probably fair. Um, but I think they had to do something. Uh, and this was the best they could come up with, unfortunately. But I did like Sure, it. that makes sense. Um, I also, my big complaint, less with the, the Caterpillar B plot, I just didn't enjoy Big Mama. She was like, clearly supposed to be some sort of stand-in narrator but like i didn't understand why because the story didn't need narrating yeah at least to me and so like she would occasionally explain something that we like all were seeing and uh even at the beginning when she goes to get the widow to take care of todd uh it just felt kind of like unnecessary like she would have eventually walked out to get her laundry anyways and found Todd there. And so I, I, yeah, it just felt really weird. I didn't like Big Mama. So I also wanted to talk about Big Mama because I feel like mom, she, she plays this part in kind of being the supposed, uh, like, I guess the moral center of the film. Like she kind of is um, the, the one who keeps bringing out like the, the the uh, the morality or the correctness of a situation, um, and this, she just felt very Saturday morning, um, like growing up in the '80s, like Saturday morning uh-huh. special. Uh, there has to be a message in in a story. Like the story can't. Uh, I, I feel like there was this shift, and Michael, you could, you can do better um, on this than I can, I'm sure. But like, I felt like there was this shift in the '80s where with kids. Um, there, there always had to be some sort of like, you know, at the end of every GI Joe, there was a, um, you know, uh, uh, like a little truth or a little moral or something that, that had to be in there. Well, I like think we there literally let... had to be, I think the federal government might have, the F- FCC may, might've actually mandated that. Yeah. But I just feel like that was the, I, I don't know, the, the, the culture or the, zeitgeist or whatever of the time was like this is what kids need like it it was that real shift i mean maybe this is all tied up in the disenchantment reenchantment thing that we've talked about several times but like a 
you you can't discover through just the the power of a story um some sort of like way to live or or life lesson or something it has to be very explicitly put in there for you is is kind of how i felt about her now i i see what you're saying but i i thought one of the more aggravating things about big mama was that her message chained changed chained so she she sings um best of friends which seems to suggest what i think most people would think of as the the moral of this movie which is you know people have to learn prejudice they're uh when you're children you get along and everything is great and we should all be more like children uh but then 30 minutes later she's telling todd that he can never talk to copper again because you can't change your nature Mm. so so there is a kind of moralistic quality to her but i thought the moral itself was kind of confused well, Michael, you know why? That's because she just finished eating off some cute little bunnies. <laughs> she says, "I gotta lose a few pounds." She's she's recognized the the the, the hypocrisy of her own stance. See, uh, speaking of which, by the way, um, <laughs> uh, owls definitely eat baby foxes. So I'm I'm not sure her first uh, her first impulse would be to protect him. Well, that was the other thing too. Is like the beginning of the movie she has this moral about getting someone to protect him but she kind of passes the buck on it she says oh someone should take care of you but not me you know and so i had, there's just like little things like that the change um best of friends to uh your identity right uh, big mama was it was all over the map with her so i i agree that she's not necessary for this movie and if they wanted to keep the song which best of friends is the song everybody knows from this movie they could have just done what they did in the rescuers and have a disembodied voice sing it you didn't have to have it be diegetic music yeah she comes back though to cheer him up in once he's placed in the uh whatever the game preserve yeah, the game preserve. Thank you. Um, and so she shows up and is kind of the the matchmaker. So she plays another role there. Um, and and that's there's there's an, again another like kind of moralizing statement in there. Um, this one I actually quite like. She says, um, "You got to stop showing off and start showing up." Which I think I mean it's super. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I just there's there's something about that that I I think yeah that's that's actually a, a nice phrasing of that sort of thing you know. And when it's it's one of the few times when the parallel to Bambi was extended rather than shortened. The 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 equivalent of the Twitter painted scene I thought was much longer here than in Bambi. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. Um, I was I told Michael this before, but. Um, that scene to me is is very interesting in this movie, um, and I was thinking about it a lot. And par- pardon me, but I think that might be one of the like top five like horniest moments in Disney canon. <laughs> <laughs> the way that he uh, looks up Vixie, and uh, it was it was truly fascinating to watch. Uh, now as opposed to a kid but uh he definitely <laughs> he was definitely cruising for vixie <laughs> wesley how old were you when you saw the lion king for the first time uh probably uh, what, what year did the lion king come out 94 that was the year i was born Ouch. And... <laughs> uh, i probably watched it for the first time when i was four or five i don't know okay because because I, I was 12 when the lion king came out and the song "Can You Feel the Love Tonight" made me deeply uncomfortable. 
Uh, I came up with a top three for the horniest scenes in Disney, and to me it was the fox and the hound with Todd and Vixie, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, and then Kiss the Girl from The Little Mermaid. Oh, Kiss the Girl's romantic, though. Yeah, Kiss the Girl's great. Okay. Okay. How How about Thumper pounding his foot at a at a rapid rate when he sees the lady rabbit oh sure yeah I oh, there's a long history a long in time. disney movies of like pg sex scenes or g-rated sure. sex scenes i suppose yeah they're g-rated the worst so thing cool. to me is that the the birds want to watch like <laughs> boomer, boomer is upset <laughs> that big mama won't let him stay and watch Right, and then he, like, what's weird is it, like, kind of fades off and then fades back, and he, like, is swaggering out of this foxhole, and uh, Vixie then, uh, shortly after, talks about wanting a family of six. Um, I, I I laughed hysterically throughout that entire sequence. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny as an adult. I mean, I saw this movie when I was a kid for sure. And I didn't think anything of it, but, uh, I do now. (laughs) Um, I've also been, because of that one scene, I've been developing this theory, how I think that this movie is deeply Catholic. Um, a lot of it centers around Vixie wanting a family of six. And then I think that, uh, widow, uh, oh gosh, what's her her name? The widow, widow Tweed. I think she might be Catholic um, because of how she, you know, adopts people and even takes care of her neighbor after all that happens. And um, she's obviously wearing church clothes. She could be a different denomination, but I, I was getting strong Catholic vibes out of this movie. Well, it's nice to know that neither Josh nor I has to perform the obligatory. Uh weirdo religious reading of this movie that it's been done for us <laughs> yeah thanks wesley you're welcome <laughs> oh that that is really good i actually want to follow that with because uh, I, I did wonder if there was something about neighborliness that this movie was trying to teach us about or tell us about um so yeah do you have more to say about the, about her her neighborliness or her hospitality yeah absolutely i mean um kind of the first interaction we see between Amos and the widow is when he chases her down and shoots at her car. Um, and then she shoots his car, but she doesn't shoot him. Right. She could have, um, it would have been a very different movie if the widow tweeted killed Amos (laughs) a third of the way. in. She was, (laughs) she was clearly incensed with him, but, um, uh, I found it very interesting that by the end of the movie, right, she uh, chose to tend to his health um, when he, you know, he had shot at her, which I think would be a terrifying experience. Um, And then also, like, the entire movie is actively trying to kill the only thing that is keeping her from feeling the despair of loneliness. Uh, She mentions, I won't feel so lonely now when she adopts Todd. Um, and like the injury is because he went to kill Todd after she went to release him. Um, and it said, you know, she's being a good neighbor. She comes over, tends to his wounds. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, they didn't do any more to kind of look at that view of her, 
but I was pretty surprised that she was such a good neighbor to him. I think that's a good analysis. I was, um, did you, did you see other neighborliness in this movie, Michael? Well, you, you certainly get the, uh, the opposite of that with the badger in the game preserve when Todd doesn't know what to do in the wild. Um, by the way, folks, if you happen to raise any wild animals from when they're babies, uh, don't just release them in the woods. They can't fend for themselves. That Todd got lucky. He uh, almost certainly would have been eaten by something. But anyway, um, you, you have the badger who um, is, is very rude and even cruel to Todd. And then you have the porcupine who lets him move into his hollowed out tree. So I, I think you've got a little bit of it there. They're teaching him to be wild. Right. It almost did mirror, in a way, uh, Amos and the Widow Tweed um, with the porcupine and the badger, which was pretty interesting. The badger's uh, pretty scary, I think. He's uh, Especially the second time he shows up, he's animated in a very threatening way. I really enjoyed the Badger. I thought he was kind of funny, um, mostly because I viewed him as crotchety rather than uh, mean. So I, I kind of enjoyed the Badger's presence. I don't know. John Fiedler is the porcupine. Piglet. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I was, I mean, speaking of uh, a name... With this movie, I was very surprised by the star power that came with the the voice acting. Oh yeah, Mickey Rooney was the. Uh, oh, I, I, I should have looked it up. There's a Simpsons gag about him being uh, the top box office draw for two decades, and it's like 1939 to 1940. So <laughs> yeah, M- Mickey Rooney of all people plays adult Todd. Corey Feldman plays young Copper. Uh, Kurt Russell, right? Is is old Copper? Is that? 1981, would that be before he hit the height of his powers? or He was a child star. Uh, I Yeah, I, I think this was still pretty early. I don't even know how old he would have been in 1981. He was in his 20s, right? Did you know that one of the last things that Walt Disney did in his lifetime was write... He's on his deathbed, and he wrote Kurt Russell's name on a piece of paper, and nobody knows what that was about. <laughs> Maybe he wanted him to star in The Fox and the Hound. <laughs> wow. He got his wish. <laughs> that is a bizarre beast of trivia, Michael. <laughs> Isn't it? I, I, and I, I don't think anybody knows what, what he meant by it. Maybe Kurt Russell killed him. And it, it was him trying to, trying to get that news across. Uh, the guy who plays Amos, I can't remember his name, is Grandpa Joe from... Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, right, right, right. Which right. once you know yeah. that, uh, you you it's very easy to hear. Yeah, and then Boomer is voiced by someone familiar Paul too. Paul Winchell, right? he's Tigger. Oh, yeah, I heard it, but I couldn't place it. And the Widow Tweed is played by the same woman who played Ellie May from the um, from the Rescuers. Ellie May is the kind of muskrat hillbilly woman in the swamp. I guess you're not a hillbilly if you live in a swamp. You're a swamp person. Right. Um, I was really surprised with how, despite having some really great voice actors, or at least some people that would draw attention, this movie was not 
it didn't live up to the people that were in it. You know what I mean? None of the performances really stand out. I think that's true. Right. Did you agree None with that, Josh? Did... Yeah, I think there's something about this movie where it's like, <clears throat> it's like we said, there's so much um, power on the, like future powerhouses on the animation side and d- director side as well. Um, that are working on this movie, but it just, it does feel like just the first faltering steps, right? Like they've got the, there, there's some ideas there and, uh, uh, but it, it just doesn't, it doesn't all click, you know, like it's just not quite right yet. And I think the, the, the star power can't save that, you know? I didn't mind the voices, or I mean, any of the performances particularly. Like none, none stood out to me as particularly grating or anything. But it just, it was, it was like the the movie on a whole, kind of to me was just kind of, um, it just, it never, it never reached any any sort of, you know, uh, just wow, this is really great. I really, this is really wonderful. Like it, it all felt very predictable and very. Um, I guess, like we said earlier, like softened, you know, like it just, it never, it never went anywhere for me. The, but I know that's not true for you, Michael. So if you want to talk <laughs> about that a little bit. But before we get there, I, I will say on on that score, it, the, maybe the movie it reminds me the most of is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, I don't know when the, the last time you saw that was, but that is a, an incredibly dark book that turned into a movie that's much darker than most Disney movies, but not dark enough to be a real adaptation of the book. And I think you get a little bit of that here in The Fox and the Hound as well. It's it's too dark to really fit in with some of the other stuff. It's darker even than The Rescuers. Um, but it's not really dark enough to tell the story they're trying to tell either. So I think it kind of falls into that no man's land uh, that The Hunchback of Notre Dame will fall into 15 years later. I think no man's land is a great way to put it. Like it's it's um it's not swinging for the fences good or like swinging for the fences bad, right? Like we talked about that in the, in the past where like it's clear that they're really trying to attempt something and they just can't get it. Um and it's also like uh obviously not transcendently good, but there's nothing that that particularly stands out as like well this is awful. It's just it's a little too slow. It's a, it's a little like it's it's not quite light enough and it's not quite dark enough like it's just yeah, I, I, No Man's Land is a great way to, way to put it. I think it would have been a lot more effective almost as a, a short, maybe, you know, uh, 10, 20 minutes. You probably could have hit all the notes in this story um, and shedded some of the things that are muddying about this. Because um, you definitely could have found a way to establish Copper and Todd as having been friends um, or you know, the transition from friendship into uh, realizing differences. Um, and I just think, yeah, if they had, if they had shortened it up, it, it could have been more fun to watch, but obviously it wouldn't have been a moneymaker at that point. Well, and they weren't making shorts really at that time. Um, they could have done it for television, I suppose. The one voice performance I thought was bad, and I just looked up the woman's name and I lost it. Um, is Jeanette Nolan, Widow Tweed, her performance is mostly fine, but the scene where she's taking Todd to to drop him off in the woods, 
she she does a voiceover, which Josh helpfully paraphrased at the beginning of the show. And it, it's so uh, lachrymose and melodramatic that I I um I it really it really annoyed me. And I, I don't know that that's her fault. I don't know that's a performance issue and not a writing issue. But man, that scene didn't need to be there. They they could have. It, it's a moving scene. I cried at the scene. Um, but it it could have been so much better if it was just silent. You know, we we understand what she's going through. We know what she feels. We know she loves him and doesn't want to get rid of him. Just show it on her face. Show it on his face where he's trying to figure it out and uh, trust your audience. But they didn't do that, and so it ends up being uh, manipulative. Still, right. it made me cry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that voiceover was pretty bad. Um, but, and it, I think it, it really hurt an otherwise excellent scene. Um, so. Did either of you cry at that scene? Were any of you, either of you incredibly moved by, uh, by poor Widow Tweed being alone in the world? I think it's awesome that you were. I, I, I really, I think it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't cry, but my wife did, so. Yeah, I just I felt like it was um yeah, too a little too um I I think as you said like you could see you could see the 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 moving pieces a little too well for me, you know. Uh Victoria looked over at me and said, "Are you crying?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I think for me it fits into that theme we were talking about or I was talking about a little earlier about like the moralizing like it it it's like they don't trust you to um, to get the meaning out of the scene unless they tell you, you know, like now they're both going to be alone. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I felt about it. Yeah. I do feel bad for the Widow Tweed, though, because, you know, she puts Todd out in the wilderness and Todd finds uh, a lover, right? And... Uh, the widow tweet has no one, right? So it's a big, big win for Todd in the end. Uh, but she just goes back to her lonesome life. No, that's not true. She makes friends with Amos next door. Is it friendship? I mean, he was still pretty rude to her while she has somebody managing. new to dote on. Sure. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I uh, mean, given Wesley, have, given my well documented uh, feelings about pet idolatry. Uh, you know, I think I have to say that it's probably a trade up for the widow Tweed in the sense that she is talking to a human being with an immortal soul now instead of a animal. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> yeah, and have neither of you seen Beauty and the Beast? I mean, this is obviously the beginning of something wonderful. Like this is exactly how the Beauty and the Beast romance starts as he gets hurt and then she tends for him. I mean it's just <laughs> Beauty and the Beast is a rip off of Fox and the Hound. <laughs> absolutely what a hot take <laughs> that's amazing uh, um, unfortunately we don't know what happens because the sequel is a midquel the sequel there there are still cubs oh yeah did you, uh, i bought the dvd for this and uh i haven't watched the midquel yet but i just might i hear the fox and the hound 3 is coming uh in 2023 oh <laughs> gosh Maybe the world will end before then. The the other thing I thought, uh, speaking of their this new relationship with Amos, um, 
one of my notes was, do you think that Amos is a card-carrying member of the NRA? I think there's a chance, right? Like, <laughs> if it's a thing in his time. Winnow Tweed seemed pretty comfortable with a shotgun, too, to be fair. She did. She really did. Uh, but he, he's he's very comfortable shooting at his neighbor. I just was uh, very surprised by that. I know all of us have uh, are, are are deeply invested in some way in education, and so I just I, I didn't know if you guys wanted to talk about uh, the song uh, "Education uh, Elimination Lack of Education." <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> <laughs> is this um, wh- when does this take place? It's early in the movie, is that right? No, this is the uh, this is the same time when they're they're. Uh, they show him the pelts, so it's it's when gotcha. they're saying you're never gonna be friends. It's actually, I guess it's uh, I don't know, maybe half. I I don't actually know in the in the whole scale of the movie, but it's 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 when spring has come and he's grown, uh, and he's 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 eagerly waiting for Copper to come back, and she says, well, when he comes back, he's gonna be a real hunting dog. Right, right. So so the education he's getting is an education in uh, practicality and pragmatism. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a cute little song, but it is it, it's again very uh, I don't know uh, schoolhouse rockish or something you know like it's... that's exactly what I thought <laughs> yeah. I thought it sounded like the schoolhouse rock probably because it was an owl but um, <laughs> I don't know I I thought it would have been a good song if she hadn't sung the best of friends earlier before. Because it was just so muddled, it felt it felt weird to me because of of her previous message, and I don't think I could ever get past that. Um, and it was kind of sad because this practical education is, uh, I mean, if we take the broader look at about you know the the racial component of this movie, that society is society, right? Ultimately, and that you got to know um, that you're not welcome in certain parts and you just got to be okay with that and um, embrace it. So it it was kind of a depressing song to me. Yeah. The education is riding the back of the bus. Yeah. Well, that's a much darker way to, I I wasn't thinking about it. (laughs) Sorry, Josh. (laughs) No, I think it's, no, I don't, I don't know if I know how I look at it. I just, I I think you guys are right. I think you read it exactly right. I just, uh, um, I just thought it was kind of, I, I, I don't know what, 
I, I think it's meant to be funny, although at the same time, it's it's kind of a dark humor, I guess, you know, because um, Dinky's falling over dead when when Boomer pretends to shoot him, you know. So, yeah, there's definitely a there's a there's a violence underneath underneath that song for sure. Um, the only final thing I'll note about this movie, and it's so unimportant. Uh, my dog loved this movie. She watched it with us last night, and she doesn't watch TV while we watch usually, but she would pay attention for minutes on end. So I don't know what Disney did, but they got a dog to pay attention. Wow. I can't speak to that. Our cats were not interested in it. Maybe it's because she heard copper bark. I'm not sure, but... She'd set at attention, and she even like walked up close to the TV and and just sat down and looked up. And it's pretty pretty unique. Never seen her do it before. This is going to be a terrible transition, but Josh, what did your children think of the movie? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we didn't watch this one together because um, Allison, my wife Allison, doesn't care for it, and so. Um, and I didn't remember it being particularly good. Actually, the, the memory thing is funny because so my, my younger brother watched this a million times. Like He's three years younger than I am, and so I was a little older when, when he was watching it over and over and over again, as, as kids will often do. Um, and so I texted him and said, hey, is there anything you want me to say about the fox and the hound? And he laughed and said, I actually don't remember anything about the movie, which is which is just bizarre, right? Like how you can watch something so many times, but then when you're asked to recall it, like it's just not there, which is how I felt going in. Like I, I remembered uh, not particularly loving it. Like it wasn't one that I was excited to show my kids. And so then when Allison said she wasn't going to show it to, or, you know, wasn't eager to show it to them either, it was just kind of like, well, okay, we won't do it. Um, but then it's funny as I was watching it, uh, it was hard to watch it objectively uh, particularly on like is this movie super predictable or is it like deeply embedded in my subconscious somewhere like that's why i know like what the next joke is going to be and what the next line is going to be is because i actually like it is in there i just can't recall it directly so uh, i yeah i'm not a clear judge on if this movie is super predictable or not um it it definitely felt that way to me though watching it not their best uh, not even close, but also not the worst one we've seen. I don't think. I think it's better oh, definitely. than Sword in the Stone, for example. Yeah, I think if I had a different, um, I could easily have a different affection for this movie. Like if it, it like, um, look, trying to look at it objectively, whatever, whatever that even means, it is definitely better than some of the movies I have shown my kids. Um, but uh, yeah, just not having a deep affection for it, like. You know, like my kids love the Aristocats. Like they, we watch it all the time, and I, I, we tore that movie to, to shreds. It's not. That movie is in much it, worse you know? than this one. Yeah, it's much worse than this one. I, I, I will agree with you. It's much worse. But, um, you know, I was, I was willing to show it to my kids because of the catchy songs, and they love cats, and so they, they have, they have a deep affection for cats, and, you know, I just, I, I guess I don't have a deep affection for hound dogs or foxes, so. <laughs> So yeah, it's funny how movies work that way.
Um, and the other thing that I thought that was deeply disturbing from this movie was when Todd uh, accidentally opens up the outhouse with all the pelts in it. Yeah. And oh, it's not an accident. They show him. The, oh, that's right. Big Mama does it. Yeah, it's the yeah, and Boomer I think is there too, and and demonstrating to him why the this friendship cannot be right. Deeply scarring though, right? It kind of uh, it reminded me of the beginning of uh, Braveheart when he walks in to that uh, house with all the the people hanging. Um, poor Todd. I, that's all I could think the entire time was poor Todd. That that's terrible. Why would she do such a thing to him? Well, you gotta get the you gotta get the point across, I guess. Do you think his mother's pelt was in there, or his father's, or? Well, we know Whoever. that Amos probably didn't kill Todd's parents because he was away getting copper during that hunt. Oh sure, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Because if he had, I'm not sure we could forgive him. Yeah. Yeah. The scene the scene it reminded me of was um. In uh, Rat- Ratatouille, actually, when the um, the father rat is trying to show Remy that humans can't be trusted, and he takes him to the 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 whatever the store is, the the convenience store where they sell all the rat poison and rat traps and things like that, and the, they've got all the rats hung hung dead on the wall. <laughs> I just keep thinking about Get Out for some reason. <laughs> Uh, so you're, what you're saying is when Disney inevitably greenlights the live-action version of Fox and the Hound, they should get Jordan Peele to do it. You know, if Jordan Peele directed the live-action Fox and the Hound, I might actually go see it. <laughs> oh, man. That'll be a bad day when that happens. I mean, which I think leads us very easily into talking about race in this movie. Because I, I, I think one way to read it, and it, it's probably the most obvious way to read it, is this is a movie about deeply ingrained social prejudice that we all have to get past. But if you're taking that as the metaphor of the movie, it doesn't really work because they don't get past it. They can kind of have a mutual respect for each other. But the movie literally ends with segregation. Right. Yeah, it was, it was really strange that the message of the movie is difference is okay but also how about you just never talk to each other again yeah i felt like that was a a a pretty blurry message and um i mean so is is the idea there that um actually they they could be friends it's not it's not that they need to be segregated it's that um as she says in the first song it's it's other people who are keeping them apart. So until all of us reach this sort of enlightened level where we can talk to each other and all the uh, all the old timers who who still hold that you know foxes and hounds have to be <laughs> mortal enemies um, die off or something like like we're stuck. Was that the idea? Once all the old white people die, there won't be any more racism. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was it was certainly weird, and I what I don't understand is while that's the message, I mean, other than the brief spell where Co- or Copper gets really you know mad with um, Todd, they never really succumb to this like problem that 
the movie's about. Um, and the main antagonist of the film, Amos, like, I mean, he's a fox hunter, right? It's it's not like he's prejudiced against foxes necessarily. It's more that he hunts foxes. I was I was a little confused about what the message was. I mean, the ethical the ethical way to the movie is clearly on Todd and Copper, and and Amos and Widow Tweed are just kind of there to support the message. So it's it's about whether they can. And it's not they. It's it's about whether Copper can get past his training because it's it's not really his nature. It's how he was trained. Um, if he can get past his training and make friends with someone who is his enemy, and the answer is kind of maybe if he saves his life. But then, right. but then I... they, they can't they can't talk anymore. Like they have to keep to their own kind. Oh, and I wondered, does this mean that Copper never hunts again? Or that he just doesn't hunt Todd and Vixie. I mean, I would assume it's the the latter. I mean, he's a hunting dog. What else is he going to do? But the movie, fortunately for the movie, closes before they have to answer that question. Maybe he won't do foxes anymore. I think, though, there's, a, um, there's something else to what you were saying, though, Michael, because he, he does – he actually chooses not to hunt uh, Todd first. A little bit right like he says i'll let you go this one time and then uh and then it's his anger about chief's injury that leads him to actually go back on that and like he's actually actively hunting todd um and then it's the he saved his life that kind of reawakens in him like oh yeah there's there's something else here like i i can't let the the anger i can't let the the grief and the anger be the thing that, that decides this for me. Like it needs to be um, what I know and what is right. And so I do think that maybe it's a little more, you're right that the way the movie reads, it's really blurry, but <clears throat> now that I'm thinking through it and kind of talking through it, I'm, I'm wondering if it is a little more clear that, that they can be, they can go against their nature and be friends. Um, but then you still have that whole societal problem that's keeping them apart from each other. Yeah, that makes sense. But then I think that 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 leads to the question, like, what's the movie trying to tell us about society? Like, are we are we meant to to try and change it or are we just supposed to live with that? Because the movie the movie is very vague on that point. Like, so now what? You know, like what's what's next? Um, doesn't really come into it. Well, and I, I mean, I don't mind a, uh, I don't run a movie whose message is this is the sad way of the world, and you can you can do small things to make it better, but probably it's not actually going to change that much. Like I don't mind a movie like that, but as we talked about earlier, the movie has the structure of a morality tale, and you have this this character who seems like she's going to provide an answer for you and doesn't, and you have a, a song that seems to be about how you can overcome your differences, and it's not. I mean, the song is, but the movie's not. It's weird. Maybe it's all on purpose. Maybe, maybe they wanted, maybe they wanted a movie that was uh, actually morally complex. I think that's a really charitable way to look at this. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they wanted the animation to look really crappy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, but I, I am for those charitable readings. Like, I think I think that's a, a good way to think about it. Like, this is a morally complex issue, and 
Um, I mean, in some ways, Copper does go against society um, at the risk of his own life. Like um, Amos has shown no compulsion to not shoot anything that stands in his way before, including his neighbor. You know, so I think it is a bold move on Copper's part to stand over um, Todd at that at that moment. Like he doesn't know what Amos is going to do, but it's and so not he does enough. go against. It's not a, enough to change society forever, or but it's it's like you you said a moment ago, like you can do the small thing, um, and you can put yourself at risk. It's not going to change the entire world, but uh, it may not even. You know what I really liked actually was after that scene, they both limp away, and it kind of gave me a a bit of like the Jacob wrestling with God moment. Like you you've gone through this experience, and it has changed you, and you'll walk with that limp forever. But it doesn't necessarily mean. Um, that all of a sudden everything's right you know like we've still got to wait for the ultimate um the fox lays down with the hound (laughs) (laughs) i in in a weird way i think that that confusion has made the the racial message of this movie age better than it otherwise would have because it Again, the song Best of Friends, which is what I think most people remember this movie for, that is a very complacent racial message, right? Oh, well, children aren't prejudiced. And if we were all just more like children, we could get past these things that society... But the, the truth is more complicated than that, right? That there's something deep at the heart of humanity that makes us not like people who are different than us. And that doesn't make it right. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting segregation. But I'm suggesting that easy messages about getting past that part that's deep in us uh, don't don't really fly very well. And so we made the joke about Jordan Peele, but in a way, isn't that what Jordan Peele is arguing in Get Out? That these these differences are not actually bridgeable. I mean, wouldn't he be the right person to direct the live action? fox and the hound <laughs> because because i think it's actually whether they meant it to be or not kind of a racially complex movie uh big mama notwithstanding i'm not right <laughs> except for that glaring issue right? but, yeah so, so the message of the movie and and again i'm i'm willing to believe that it's incompetence that has that that leads us to that point but uh, even then it's an interesting point to be led to And I kind of love that. I kind of love that even incompetence can lead us to really interesting places. <laughs> like that's a that's a hopeful message. <laughs> Sometimes not very good movies end up being the most interesting movies, and and not in a like a hate watching way. Not the way The Room is an interesting movie. Um, right. it it's just like there's all these gaps in this movie, and those gaps can make it um can give you more to think about maybe. I can't believe I'm saying that the Fox and the Hound gives us a lot to think about, but. <laughs> and yet here we are. It, uh, if indeed this movie was, was made attempting to tell us that we can, we can bridge our racial divisions, which I think it probably was. Uh, they did a terrible job at it. Cause like that's, that's demonstrably not what happens in this movie. Um, so take that failure and, and make a more interesting statement about race and prejudice and, the other than uh, they wanted to make, which I guess is what right. we've done. It, it does in that way, but it also, I mean, the, the closing shot is the fox overlooking them, right? But they do bridge the gap in the sense that the widow Tweed and the Amos become at least 
not if not friends uh amicable towards one another um so they do kind of bridge some some gaps and and certainly spare lives in the process and maybe once they get married she'll convince them not to haunt foxes anymore perhaps Well, next month uh, we are talking about the. Uh, I I think the consensus is it's the worst movie Disney has ever made, uh, The Black Cauldron. It very nearly killed the company. I've never seen it. I know Josh, you've never seen it. I have not ever seen it. I've we've been working towards this moment. <laughs> yeah, I I don't even. <laughs> That's know. not entirely true. But. I I hope we can find it somewhere. I I guess it's available on DVD or on streaming. I don't even know. Uh, I think it is. I think I looked for it, and it was. Uh, I'm not positive about that now, though. So yeah, I'll have to check the, around this month and make sure that I can get a hold of it before. Uh, I think it, it is. Uh, uh, we are having uh, guest Nathan Gilmore from the the Mothership podcast uh, come and join us, and I think there are people like him in the world who consider it more of like a cult classic. Like, so it's the worst movie, but then there's there's this weird group of people who love it. <laughs> Yeah, I actually I think that I I remember loving that one, so I might have to watch. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I know two people who love the Black Cauldron. Actually, to be fair, I don't know that Nathan loves it. I just know he wants to come talk about it, so that'll be fun. Okay. Yes, that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, um, and quite seriously, it was one of one of the uh, impetuses for starting this whole venture was that I knew that there were divvies I had not seen, and I thought, well, I want I want to watch them all, and if I'm going to watch them all, I should get somebody to watch them all with me. So thank you, Michael, for uh, being that person who is willing to join me on this crazy adventure. And uh, thank you, Wesley, for coming on and joining us uh, for this conversation. It was really good. And uh, I really enjoyed your uh, the insights that you brought. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and we are on the old interwebs with, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm hesitant to even call it the most sporadic show notes, the the abandoned show notes <laughs> of before they were dot .live. Uh, you can still go visit the website, but uh, there's uh, you have to clear away the cobwebs when you get there. Uh, please help us continue this conversation by finding us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt. Michael is at Michael Farmer. Wesley, do you want to put your Twitter handle in there? Yeah, it's at Rogers Wesley, and that's Rogers with a D. All right, so you can find any of us and uh, let us know uh, your thoughts uh, on this movie or any others. Um, we're always happy to hear them and engage in those conversations. So for Michael Farmer and Wesley Rogers, uh, I'm Josh Altmanshofer, and I just want to gratefully say that we know there's a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. Uh, so we thank you for choosing us. We want to encourage you to set your podcast players' dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. Goodbye may seem forever, and farewell is like the end, but in my heart's the memory, and there you'll always be.